to fear the fro. Shot clock by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is eight for eight from downtown. There is Garland. Hit it from Euclid. Lob Dallas. Pow. Oh, that was gorgeous. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got at the buzzer! Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. This is certainly not the way that I expected to win this evening, but a win is a win and you'll take it. The Cavaliers continue their momentum as they knock off the Grizzlies on the second half of a back-to-back 108-101. Now, if this game had gone badly, despite the fact it was a back-to-back showing, I could imagine vibes similar to that of the Portland loss earlier in the year. Certainly, the critical eyes are out as the Cavaliers have returned to full strength. Now, Mobley sat out tonight, so we got to see Dean, and I was happy to see him back. I thought he was particularly effective late in the game in contesting shots. This was uh, a bit of a rock fight of a game. I wouldn't say that we got the best whistle, but I also wouldn't say that the Grizzlies got the best whistle. I don't know what you want in this scenario. Uh, I don't know if you want a high-volume free-throw game, but I thought it was reasonably let them play uh, as the Cavaliers just got 18 free throws, one more than the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies were better at the line, far and away, Uh, But Jaron Jackson Jr., who was campaigning for whistles most of the evening, only shot four free throws. Now, he paced the way for them, and I will say he was effective. He was effective despite the fact that they came into this lineup uh, a bit of a, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. and the Seven Dwarfs type arrangement. But I will say the backups that the Memphis Grizzlies sent in when he had to be spelled due to foul trouble or whatever the case may be. I didn't think Trey Jemison was bad, but holy shit. Was David Roddy bad tonight? Single-handedly, or, you know, hand-in-hand with Gigi Jackson, the rookie second-rounder for the Grizzlies. Uh, They were atrocious. For two guys to combine for 26 shots off the bench, usually that's you're taking more shots because you're on one. Uh, These guys were the opposite of whatever that is, as they went 4 for 26. They combined to go 0 for 8 in the third quarter, and David Roddy kept it going the entire second half. Did not make a shot. 0 for 7. Didn't stop him from pulling them. I mean, the Grizzlies and the Cavs were trading the lead back and forth all the way through the second half of the third quarter, and that was despite the fact that mixed in were regular clunkers from Gigi and David Roddy. Thank God for Gilliard. I don't know why I'm saying thank God. It's not like I wanted the Grizzlies to win, but my point is, holy shit. On the other side of the ball, our bench actually had some very productive minutes in the third quarter as Karis LeVert and Damian Jones led the way. Damian Jones... Damian Jones has gotten basically zero minutes of airtime on this podcast, but tonight he was called upon in the third quarter, Mobley not playing, Jared Allen goes down with an injury at just the worst imaginable time. 14 points, nine rebounds, and he would leave the game not to return, and tonight we saw the death of the double-double streak. I know, it's tragic. First, he doesn't make the All-Star game, then... Uh, well, somewhat meaningless, but something I cared about streak comes to an end. At the end of the game, I was hoping he would just come out of the locker room to a rousing ovation and, and collect one more rebound to keep it intact, Willis Reed style. But it was not to be. However, uh, big picture, we just got to hope that Jared Allen is okay. Because while his touch wasn't fantastic, 
in the first half. His effort was, and right off the bat, you saw him contesting shots. I mean, in just 20 minutes, for him to do 14-9 and three blocks is pretty impressive in and of itself. Donovan Mitchell, clearly the star for the Cavaliers tonight, as he and Karras, and even Max, to a certain extent, took over late in the game. As we got to the end of the third quarter, which is really when I started to feel confident, because you started to see some of that Cavalier resilience that we have seen late in these games. I mean, we saw it with Detroit, Donovan Mitchell, it was mostly all him, but in that game against Detroit, he was just knocking down ridiculous shots to rival the obscene shot-making the Detroit Pistons were putting forth on the other end. And at the end of the third quarter, the Cavaliers took the lead four times in like a four-minute span. Every time down the court, the Grizzlies were matching them, and they just continued to score. Coro hit a right elbow triple. Karis LeVert came back, hit a second triple from the exact same spot. Donovan Mitchell scored after Gilliard knocked down back-to-back threes on his end, and Karis LeVert did what Karis LeVert always does at the ends of quarters. He scores buckets, three straight points to put the Cavaliers up by one heading into the fourth. I have kind of felt like, as stupid as this sounds, When Jared Allen left the game, we got a lot more even effort in terms of everybody getting involved. And of course, I guess they would have to if you lose one of your star players and Mobley's not even playing tonight. But to get six points out of Struess, out of Levert, out of Merrill, all of them chipping in with multiple baskets in the fourth quarter was big. And there may be no bigger sequence than the one Max Struess delivered late in this game when he secured an offensive rebound at a pivotal time which he then tossed to Karras for an unobstructed flush. Then the very next offensive possession, he knocked down one of his triples tonight. So uh, for a double-digit effort on the glass from him in Jarrett's absence, just big, big play from Max Struess. Now, I could dwell on this game, but um, let's look forward to the next one, shall we? Because the Cavaliers have another, hopefully, fingers crossed, with no Jarrett Allen, who knows, what's ahead for us, but thank God Mobley's back in the fold, right? For all those, I guess you could look at it like this. If you're of the mindset that we need to blow up this team and get rid of Mobley or Garland, well, Jared Allen being out and Victor Wembanyama being on the schedule is exactly the time where you say, thank God Evan Mobley is here, right? And just to this on a larger scale, uh, I'm going to go to a mailbag, which is going to touch on this, but let me just say this. I'm watching just as eager and anxious as I'm sure all of you are to see how quickly our guys reintegrate. But what I'm trying to do is not take the wins for granted. And look at this stretch against lighter competition as the time when we can afford to absorb some of these speed bumps. Now, long term, I'm with all of you. I have a certain set of expectations for the team performance with Darius Garland and these max level players there. And Darius Garland will be held to a very high standard on a max contract, and when we make a decision on an extension for Evan Mobley, certainly, I have a lot more leniency for Evan Mobley in this period, where he's still on his rookie contract, than I will if we put him on a contract much larger than Jared Allen's, and we all collectively end up feeling like Jared Allen is the more important piece in the front court. But, I've said this all along, I want to be operating from a place of feeling confident that we've given this every possible chance because I don't want regrets. People's expectations for two guys just returning from injury, one of whom had his mouth wired shut for weeks on end. I mean, you can do all the cardio in the world, but it's not the same thing as game action. And he's playing with guys who've developed a rhythm together, developed a rapport, and you're dropping them in. But people's desire to win more than anything. I mean, Darius Garland 
is already paid. He has no reason not to want to work with this group. He's not playing for personal glory at this point. He's not out there Joel and beating it, destroying his season because of some desire to remain eligible for awards at the end of the season. So if we play half a season, shit our pants in the playoffs, and then we're sitting here talking about how we're going to max Evan Mobley uh, and have four guys on gigantic, uh, yeah, then reevaluate. I'll be ready at that point. But I'm, I'm slower moving than all of you because I am firmly of the belief that the regular season is important. All games matter. But the playoffs and the regular season are two separate things. So even if we were just barnstorming through this, what's to say we don't turn around and pull a Knicks in the postseason? We can all acknowledge who the most talented players are. That doesn't mean they're going to be the ones that work the best together. But we can all acknowledge the immense talents of a Mobley or a Garland. So I want to give JB every opportunity to figure out how to play as similar to the way that we played during this softer stretch during the injuries, uh, but with the full unit and against the more quality teams in the league. And I think it is worth noting that the wins against the Bucks and the Clippers should go a long way to grant them some grace during these less impressive wins against an obscenely hot outlier shooting performance from the Detroit Pistons and then this game against the Grizzlies, which was just, I mean, it was ugly. It was not a fun watch by any means, but it was a good outcome. Now, let's hit the mailbag. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Okay, today's caller, or I don't know why I say caller. It's not a phone. It's a digital, essentially, voicemail box. But today's participant in the Talk to Bob feature is Ben. Ben? Hi, Bob. This is Ben reaching out to you from uh, about an hour south of Cleveland. I'm a native Clevelander growing up, and I was curious about two things. The first one is I stumbled across your podcast about a year ago and have absolutely fallen in love with it, never miss an episode, love the energy, love the humor, love the enthusiasm, and wanted to know how you became a Cavs fan. I know you're based in the uh, Los Angeles area and have done a lot of work with Fox Sports, but I was just curious a bit as to your background. Okay, this is an easy explanation. Yes, I did relocate to Los Angeles for work purposes, but I grew up in Buffalo, New York, Uh, And I am a Cavs fan because until the Toronto Raptors came into existence, which was well after I had already decided who my favorite team was, the Cavs were the closest team. It was a four-hour drive to get to Richfield Coliseum, and I was a massive Mark Price fan. And that was probably also influenced by the fact that my brother was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. And in the early 90s, when we were watching basketball during my formative years, that was the natural rival to the Bulls, or so it seemed. I know Bulls fans would say, well, you were just a road bump on the way to six titles. But still, Mark Price, his poster is still on my childhood bedroom wall. All these many, many, many years later, it said, Mark of Excellence. He was dribbling the basketball, running down the court on it. And to this day, even with LeBron James, Mark Price is still my favorite player. And ironically enough, I found out he hosts a podcast about basketball. I wanted to reach out, see if he wanted to do the pod, but then I listened to his podcast, which is, it it showed me he's a very religious man, and considering the general content of this podcast, this is my greatest fear, right? They say you should never meet your idols, and I do sort of adhere to that belief, that I don't imagine Mark Price would think that I'm as cool as I think Mark Price is. Sometimes I reach out to people and I ask them if they want to do my podcast. And then, presumably, they listen to the most recent episode. And after having said they would do it, they then back out and I never hear from them again. 
which is understandable. I made a, a choice here. I will probably never get advertisers. I will probably limit myself somewhat with my guests, but I, I started this because the Cavs, more than anything else, are a lifelong passion. Now, I arrived here deciding to do this mainly because I feel like I'd finally been beaten down by advertiser-imposed limitations on what I could try creatively uh, one too many times. So I decided that this podcast would serve as a vehicle for me to do just weird shit, but do it around the framework of something I love, the calves. So hopefully that answers your question. Let's get to the actual part of your question, though, the basketball-related part. My second question is uh, Cavs-centric to this season. And if you go back to the 8-1 and start in the campaign last year and then this run that we've been on, the thing that's in common is that Darius is not on the floor and Donovan is playing the one. Now, I know what I'm saying speaks like blasphemy, but do you think that there's a path forward for this team where Darius actually becomes a trade piece and asset if we're able to extend Donovan? Um, and do you think that CPJ would be ready to next season start in that second unit role with more consistent minutes, if indeed that's what we're looking at? If not, how do you envision them reacclimating Darius when he returns? Because I feel like Evan can come back into this type of offense much more easily. My fear is that the ball is going to stop moving when Darius returns. Thanks, Bob. Love the pod. Very timely question, Ben, because I feel like all of us share the same anxieties, uh, the same concerns in terms of how's the offense going to look with Darius back in the fold? Is he going to move the ball? Is he going to kind of fall in line, for lack of a better term, and play the way that we were also satisfied with during this stretch? I truthfully don't know the answers to that. I'm just taking it in and watching and trying to observe and see how it goes. Now, as it relates to the comments you made about Darius versus Evan and who's more movable, as far as I'm concerned, you're spot on there. I have always felt like Darius Garland is the one who should be held to the higher standard. He's the one on the max contract. Also, his handcuff, if you want to call Donovan Mitchell that, is a top 10, top 15 NBA talent. And he has been for the last two seasons. So assuming, which I absolutely do, that Donovan Mitchell will resign here, I'm 90% confident uh, that we, his best option will be to remain a Cavalier. Assuming he does that, and assuming that he doesn't do that until at least this summer, and we've given this team a maximum runway just to see if they can find a rhythm like what we found in this stretch where everybody was out, well then yes, I would at least have a discussion about how committed are we to this four-star construction on massive money, presumably. I think if and when we reach a pivot point, the logical pivot is to break the backcourt up before the frontcourt, personally. Now take that with a grain of salt. I love dominant big men, so I'm sure my bias is impacting things. But let me make my case. First thing in favor of Mobley over Garland, at least in the short term, is money issues. Now I say that with absolutely zero knowledge of the expectations of Mobley's camp. We know what he could make, though. If he signs a five-year max deal, it could land anywhere between $240 million and $300 million, depending on what kind of accolades he were to win between now and then. But if he's winning accolades, that likely means we'll want to retain him at all costs. I think for so long that we've just taken it face value that Mobley will get max. But I do think the front office 
has to be, they, they can't treat it like monopoly money, like the way I view this. They're going to have to figure out how to balance teams. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts. Two maxes is really kind of a breaking point for a lot of teams. You can give three maxes, but it can cripple you in so many other ways in terms of being able to fill out the roster to say nothing of all the punitive stuff in the various apron levels. Now, right now, I'm all about patience. However, my patience isn't limitless, and my expectations will increase as the financial burden of keeping this roster together causes our options to decrease. The reason I wasn't one of the get rid of Nyang guys or the trade Dean Wade guys or even the dump Isaac Okoro guys is because when I look at what they make versus what they produce, those are wins. And those are when those are the type of people we need on the roster on the opposite of these massively paid guys like Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, and, and Jared Allen to a lesser extent. But once Mobley is on this next deal, there needs to be an impact commensurate to that level of pay on both sides of the ball. And it's not just the money of Evan and Darius. Donovan jumping to a $60 million a year contract is going to ratchet up the pressure on both those other two guys due to the fact that he adds more pressure to the cap. I haven't even talked about the ultimate nightmare scenario where we max Evan and then we lose Jared Allen to some sweetheart deal and unrestricted free agency by another team who doesn't have the financial pressure on them that we're going to. But let's, let's keep it on topic. I mean, there's really three paths here. Keep everyone together. Give Evan Mobley the max and deal with all of the cap apron penalty fallout, which we've talked about on past podcasts. I don't think that's a realistic long-term solution, barring us winning NBA titles with this core. If we prove to be a third or fourth seed consistently and we can just never get over the hump and there's a significant gap between the the Celtics and us, well, that's not going to be tenable. Everybody had the best intentions, but if we don't get there, then at some point a discussion is going to be had as to, well, what's the best way to retool this core and maybe move some pieces to address other problems, etc. Now, fortunately, the way we've built our roster with overlap in the front court and overlap in the back court means it's, it's probably not going to be a total rebuild. It won't be a total teardown. It'll be a pivot. The reason why I think Darius is just a much more logical person to move is because we already know what his money is and he's locked in. I think there are a lot of GMs who look at the role that he plays here and thinks that he'd be even better in a scenario where he is truly running the offense entirely. I mean, we saw what he did in that last stretch before Donovan Mitchell arrived, and that's not discrediting what he's done. Honestly, I don't know if you could find many people who could fit side by side with a top 10, top 15 talent being dropped in and still maintain basically the same numbers. But I think take out the statistics from an eyeball test. It's just not the same vibes you had with Darius when he was by himself. And I think some people viewed that first all-star season as this launching point and he's more sustained, which again, understandable playing alongside Donovan Mitchell, who is a true alpha 1A talent. And while I sit here trying to stall for time to see if we can get a bigger sample with all these guys together, get some sort of continuity, get some sort of rhythm. Here's the other thing. Health. Darius Garland has never played over 70 games. I'm not taking it for granted that Darius Garland is always going to be out there, whereas Evan Mobley's been a relative Iron Man. Part of my love of the Mobley-Jared Allen construction, it's not even specific to the talents necessarily. It's specific to the way that we've tried to cobble together 
basically a three-man rotation. I like that archetype construction for bigs. We have our big, big, a five. We have our hybrid big, a four, five. And we have our space hit out big, who's a four, sometimes even a three, one press two. It allows you to essentially get two centers and two power forwards out of three salary slots. Now, right now, because Evan's still on that rookie contract, the actual overall amount of money we're paying to our big men is, is not large at all. But what's looming is disastrous. Right now, Jared Allen makes $20 million, Evan Mobley makes $9 million, and Dean Wade makes $6 million. You're talking about $35 million for a three-man front court rotation between the power forward and the center. Now, if you just look at what the Grizzlies, the team on the other side of the floor, spent tonight, they have over $50 million invested in Steven Adams, Brandon Clark, and Jaron Jackson Jr. And two of those guys aren't even playing. So, I think we take for granted right now that we are in a perfect window to deal with these redundancies at the moment. Frustrating at times, but extremely promising at others. I know there are people who think the redundancies are what makes this construction stupid. I actually think it's a cool pivot and one which I think made a lot of sense at face value. When we did this, everybody talked about, well, you can't have two small guards together. Well, it's the redundancies of the front court that have made that conversation non-existent anymore. We're still a top defense last year, the second best defense heading into the evening tonight. Nobody has shit to say about that now. If your defense is elite, your offensive peaks and valleys can be much greater. So that's the other part of my belief, I guess, is that even if at some point we do offload Darius to address other needs, I think we can absorb the step back in overall offensive talent better than we can absorb a massive step back in front court defensive talent. And and Jared Allen did yeoman's work when he was manning the middle by himself, and Dean is proving to be very solid. Dean, maybe more than anyone else, is such a critical component at this exceptionally low cost for the next few seasons of $6 million a year. I am so happy with what Dean has delivered this year. And as far as what you said about CPJ, I absolutely think that he'll... I mean, I think he could serve as the backup point guard now. I just think we happen to have more depth in the backcourt, which is another reason why I would be probably more willing to look at a Donovan solo star backcourt situation and fill in the gaps with your Karras's, your Sam Merrill's, your Max Strews sliding down to the two, your Craig Porter Jr. Anyway, that's a long-winded way to go to say that, yes, in the future, when we reach that ill-fated day where we decide that, holy shit, our money spending has caught up with us, uh, I, at this moment in time, am more inclined to break up the backcourt than the frontcourt. If it's blasphemous, I'm a brother in blasphemy, Ben, okay? So that's the mailbag for today. However, there is one more subject. Uh, now, keep in mind, I recorded this portion. I'm trying to manage my time a little better, so I actually taped this before. Um, I did not know at the time that Joel Embiid was out for God knows how long, uh, but it really doesn't change anything I said here. It just maybe frames it in a slightly more in insensitive light. But as I pointed out, I'm a piece of trash, and Mark Price isn't walking through that door any day soon. Okay, so let's get to that. Okay, we have to touch on something else. I promise not to belabor this. I realize for those of you fairly new to the Fear the Fro podcast, or those who are regular listeners, you may be picking up on an undercurrent of disdain that I hold for Draymond Green. And you're not wrong. I think the man is, well, how would you put it, Draymond? Trash. Yes, his logic skills are garbage. His inability to articulate a coherent point, garbage. 
And then you combine Draymond Green into a news story, which also includes another grifty man that I don't enjoy watching at all, Joel Embiid. And it is a story that I I would be doing a disservice if I didn't address it. Now, you've all seen the clips. I'm going to come into this with a couple presumptions. You have seen Draymond Green address the injury that Joel Embiid suffered while playing the Golden State Warriors, an injury which Embiid's supporters left to scream about because he wouldn't have ever been playing if it weren't for you people who complain about his ducking and general duck-like tendencies. <laughs> when those two forces overlaps into one vortex of absolutely missing the fucking point, I have to address it. Let's get to the audio from the Draymond Green podcast, shall we? Joel playing tonight felt very much so because of the 65 game limit. Hey, you know what? Not a bad start. You and I kind of agree. Maybe it was also because they were on a three game skid. That would be the noble reason to say you're playing. But Draymond, like most of us, probably realize the likely motivation for Joel Embiid is personal accolades like awards. But continue, Draymond. Everybody's happy with this 65 game rule until you got a bomb on NBA, all NBA team. Until you got somebody that's not totally deserving to be the MVP of the league. Here's uh, where we start to part ways a little bit. First of all, nobody's ever happy about anything. Secondly, I thought we had a fraudulent MVP last year. But hey, that's for a different podcast. Let's keep it on point. Point is, if if you believe in this fantasy world where everybody's going to be happy, no matter what the rule is, 50 games, 20 games, you're out of your fucking mind. In this case... The players don't like it. The face of logical grievances by the players, of course, being helmed by Tyrese Halliburton, certainly not Draymond. The media certainly is not happy about this 65-game limit, and some of them, I think Zach Lowe included, have given up their voting for all NBA awards because they realize there's a serious conflict of interest or ramifications to their opinions that affect players' financial well-being for the future. Here's the thing, though. The problem is not the 65-game limit, because the 65-game limit was born out of a desire to protect the fans' interest and the betterment of the league's interest. And it wouldn't have even been necessary if the players and teams hadn't exploited it to a degree where it was tangibly hurting the product and the fan experience. The problem is that they have financial incentives linked to these awards, which have a game threshold to qualify for. The dumb amongst us would say, well, get rid of the game threshold. No. What the fuck were we trying to accomplish instituting it in the first place? Continue to protect the fans' interest, but stop penalizing the players by removing the financial incentive. Then both sides get to win here. You're not just fucking the fans over again. The intention is right. The execution needs tweaking. And the first and easiest thing to correct is get rid of the financial incentive. Nobody should be forced to make a decision as to if they should play through injury when there is nearly $50 million on the line. I I appreciate and agree with Tyrese Halliburton. But... Keep this in mind about Joel Embiid specifically. That financial incentive was non-existent. He just won the MVP last year. He is eligible for a Supermax for three seasons after winning an MVP. He did not have to play for awards. And if that was a factor in why Joel played, well, that's a look in the mirror moment. That's not a goddamn you fans for making me make a stupid decision that I didn't have to make moment. 
But nowhere in this entire horrible dog shit podcast he released did he take an ounce of accountability as a player who was a part, let's not forget, their whole starting unit sat out last year in that January game against the Cavs because it was a back-to-back, not because they were hurt. And that is exactly the type of thing that kept happening, which led to this rule being implemented. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the league's motives were entirely about the fan. In fact, I wouldn't even say they were primarily about the fan. It just happened that two birds with one stone sort of applied here. The league had to do it because it had two, well, two reasons, really. One, people were buying tickets to games where entire starting lineups were sitting. And you had an uproar from people who invested heavily in a game experience that was grossly misrepresented to them. But let's be honest, the league's driven by money. So as much as I'm sure it doesn't like the... PR stain of seeing a child show up with a sign to see a player who he'll never see play. Daddy, where is Joel Embiid? Well, son, I'm sorry, but you were born in Denver. You'll never set eyes on him. Ultimately, fuck them kids. That NBA motive was secondary to the monetary interests. TNT spent $24 billion in less than a decade. Their plan seemed to be to hire Draymond Green in his post- plain endeavors, so maybe they deserve financial ruin. But I love the NBA, so in this case, I'm trying to avoid that outcome. And while the league tries to squeeze money out of these broadcast entities and what they get to pitch is a Dallas team in Cleveland where they will be led by, wait for it, Kemba Walker. Of course this bubble was going to burst at some point. If you want to criticize anyone, here would be a suggestion. Look in the fucking mirror. Because Adam Silver has proven to be nothing but the most player-supportive commissioner probably in the history of sports. And you even got him to the point where they had to issue doctor medical studies showing that load management doesn't actually bear fruit. And while that's probably a lot of propaganda in and of itself, the fact of the matter is literally any miss could be chalked up to, well, this is load management. Don't act like it didn't get pushed to the absolute most disgusting bounds of tolerance. And that's to say nothing of what Dallas did at the end of the year to intentionally sit players so that they wouldn't make it into the play-in situation. That's a whole nother issue, but it still is a direct fuck you to fans. But let's return to the Draymond Green podcast where buckle up, if you will, because here comes just a incoherent mess of terrible reasoning. To, to incorporate something, a rule like 65 games need to be played in order to win an MVP or defensive player to your All-NBA. Guys didn't face those rules before. Correct, Draymond, because that rule didn't exist before. Because load management, by and large, didn't exist before and hadn't become a problem. Usually, things change out of a desire for some sort of positive progress. When when the guys who make who win those awards this year, it won't say and and by the way, they reached a sixty-five game limit to make that. Like it's bullshit. Like that hasn't been a rule. So essentially to make guys live up to a certain standard that wasn't the standard before to make these teams, but yet you only go on the same team, there's no added bonus. Not totally sure I follow that, but I guess it depends what he means by there's no added bonus. Does he mean bonus in terms of a credit given by the fans, or does he mean monetary bonus? Because if he means monetary bonus, well, lose me on that one. You're paid for games that you play in. You're paid for games that you're hurt during. In fact, it doesn't matter whether you pay or not, so long as you're not suspended. And that's a concept 
I'm sure you're very familiar with. Hell, sometimes a team will ask you to stay home for a couple of days after you punch your teammate in the face, and you'll still get paid. So I don't know if you mean it from a monetary bonus. I don't think that's really necessary. But let's assume that you meant from a credit perspective. So you end up on the same list as the guys who back in the day played and may not have played 65 games but still made the list? So that makes me think he means he doesn't feel it's right, that the guys now have to do more to get it, so they shouldn't be paralleled against the past. Here would be my response to that. Fans aren't stupid, Draymond. Yeah, individually, of course, they're stupid fans all over. But fans as an entity are well-informed because information is available everywhere. Basketball reference exists. Hell, every time somebody trots out the who's won the most NBA championships discussion, people will rightly point out that the Boston Celtics played with like 12 teams when they started their run of championships. There's plenty of the NBA's biggest fans now who weren't even alive when Michael Jordan went 6-0, but somehow they didn't miss out on that very relevant detail. People understand nuance in context more than you might believe. But the idea that we can't change something because it might invalidate records of the past. Maybe we shouldn't have integrated baseball, Draymond. Maybe it should just be a bunch of white guys who weigh 300 pounds, chain smoking and drinking all night, and then going out and throwing heaters the next day. Now, maybe I'm being too harsh on Draymond. Maybe I am giving just people too much credit for understanding nuance and being able to look up information. Hell, Draymond himself can't even remember the details of a Defensive Player of the Year award, which he finished second in. In trying to make the point that games played didn't matter in the past and it worked against him, he just bold-faced lied to everybody. I I told you, I once once lost um, a Defensive Player of the Year award to Kawhi Leonard, and I think he played 51 games. So whoever wins Defensive Player of the Year this year, it isn't going to say, but he played 65 games. That's bullshit. You know what's bullshit? That information that you just gave out on your podcast. Because the year that you lost to Kawhi Leonard, 2014-2015, Kawhi Leonard didn't play 51 games. He played 72 games. 72 games to your 81. That year, the top six finishers all played 72 games or more. Now fast forward eight years to last year, and who won Defensive Player of the Year? Well, that would be Jaron Jackson Jr. What a convenient topic for a night like tonight. Now, Jaron Jackson Jr., he played 1,000 less minutes than Evan Mobley. Now, Brooke Lopez would have finished second had Jaron Jackson Jr. not qualified last season. But still, that would have been something far more palatable, I believe, to Cavalier fans who watched two guys log way, way, way more minutes than the first-place finisher. One year before that, when Marcus Smart won one of the more questionable defensive player of the years in recent history, how many of the top six do you think cracked 72 games? Well, that answer would be two. Bam Adebayo finished fourth, and he only played 56 games. I don't know why I let this fucking idiot continue to get to me the way that he does. But if somebody is playing despite being hurt, solely for the sake of seeking personal accolades. We simply need to remove the financial incentive to seek those accolades because then the only reason to pursue those would be ego. But Paul Reed, a fellow Sixer, is saying the quiet part out loud here. I didn't sign up for that 65-game rule. I don't remember signing no paperwork. You feel me? I guess the union okayed it. They probably didn't have a choice, though, to be honest. 
Yeah, it's tough. It adds a lot of pressure to players. We're just talking about that. A lot of pressures, especially dudes like Embiid who are trying to get MVP again. Bro, you're on his team. Say that he played because he wanted to snap the losing streak that has put you behind the Knicks and the Cavaliers. Not he was trying to feed his ego and get another trophy to put in his house that's not even remotely directly correlated to team success. Jesus fucking Christ. But anyway, I'm ending this pod. You know what they say? Go to bed angry, right? Is that the saying? I don't know. Thank you for joining the Fear the Fro podcast. If you enjoy what you've heard, please subscribe and follow first and foremost. But then if you would do me the solid of leaving a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple, uh, that does a lot of things to help us move up the algorithm, to help more people see it. And the more people who listen, the more that my personal ego is fed and I am inspired to keep going. So if you want to participate in the mailbags, go to CavsPod.com. There's a button. It says, talk to Bob. You click it. Just like that, you can record a question, a comment, a conversation starter, whatever it may be. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio. Till the next time, Cavs fans.